Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's June the 25th. It's the morning in California. It's the early afternoon in Florida. We're in the midst of another disaster. We seem to always have disasters, particularly in Florida. This one is um, eerily cinematic, as if it could have been invented by a theorist of disaster. One second the building was there, the next second it wasn't. It completely collapsed. Up to 159 missing people uh, in Florida. Uh, four dead, but the four dead, I don't quite know how they found the four, but they haven't found the 159 missing people. Uh, who knows where they are? They're probably flattened. Um, the New York Times, as our chronicler of disasters, uh, uh, quotes somebody saying, I'm at a loss for words. We have the tragic uh, pictures of people who have lost loved ones. Um, I knew them all as families await news, neighbors recall the missing. Uh, that's in the Times, in the Washington Post. Uh, we have the inevitable environmental angle. Apparently, the condo collapse, rising seas of long pressured Miami coastal properties. So, we have all the traditional ingredients uh, environmental uh, apocalypse, uh, Florida, personal tragedy. Uh, it's all too familiar. It's very sad, uh, particularly, of course, uh, for people who have lost loved ones. But one person I wonder who is rather bored with all this is my guest on the show today. Her name is uh, Elisa Gabbett. Uh, she's the author of a wonderful collection of, of essays called The Unreli Unreality of Memory. And she's a kind of chronicler or philosopher. I don't know if that's the right word. A thinker. Um, about uh, disasters. And at one point she writes in the book, I've grown tired of reading about disasters. Friends send me links and I click them and skim half-heartedly. Um, Elisa, anything interesting about this latest Florida disaster or are you already bored by it? <laughs> uh, I was expecting a, a challenge of that nature. Um, yeah, I, I, I am not trying to excuse myself or exonerate myself for this boredom I now feel about disasters after having written a whole book about them, but it is there. What? It's there that you're bored by it. Yeah, the boredom, that the boredom is there. <laughs> I mean, I've written books and by the end of a book, we're always bored by it. Uh, why did you choose or why have you chosen to spend so much time thinking and writing about disasters in this uh, wonderful book, The Un Unreality of Memory? It's you're also a poet, a historian. Uh, it's 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 painfully autobiographical. I thought at sometimes I feel as if I know you intimately, even though this is the first time we've actually ever met. What is it about disasters that intrigued you? That kind of seduced you into exposing yourself and mm -hmm. the disasters of your own life? Well, when the book started, um, the seed of it was really. It's all there in the first essay. That kind of obsession with. I found this video about the Titanic and I started watching a bunch of Titanic movies and documentaries. And then I kind of 
got to the end of them and started watching space disaster movies. Um, and I think what was appealing about it was that, you know, it was the run up to the 2016 election and it was nice to be distracted by disasters from the past. Um, it kind of what, pulled me what off. What happened in 2016, Eliza? Eliza sorry. <laughs> well, um, you know, I was, I was spending a lot of time on Twitter and, and dreading the election and um, just panicking a lot. And um, there was something kind of soothing about immersing myself in the historical versus what we were then living through, which, of course, is now itself historical. Uh, I loved your bio. I don't know what it is because you've got this all this stuff about how fancy a writer you are, you're a New Yorker, <laughs> this and that, New York Times Magazine, New York Times Review of Books, the Paris Review, blah, 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 many other publications. And then the final sentence seems to sum up your disaster. She lives in Denver. <laughs> Another disaster center, Elisa. What, what, what is it about Denver? How did you end up there? Fairly arbitrarily, and um, I don't know how much longer we'll stay here. My my husband has never really taken to it. He's from New England. Um, he does not enjoy fire season because he has asthma. So we might move back east. <laughs> I read the book as if your husband's the kind of uh, star or the the casualty of your life. Um, <laughs> you never you mention him by name, but you don't tell us much about him. Um, there's a long tradition of essayists, of course, who, who write about their significant other in their narrative from D.H. Lawrence comes to mind, uh, Siebold, who I think you owe a lot to in many ways. Um, what does he think of your work? Was he annoyed by it? <laughs> oh, good question. Um, well, he's a writer, too. And I think we are both very sensitive to portrayals of ourselves in other people's writing, as most people are. Um, I, I do always let him read my essays to make sure he's okay with the way I'm portraying him. But people always tell me, oh, we love John. Um, so I like that you said he's the star of them. He's, you know, he's the star of my life. He's the person I see, the only person I see every day. You write in the book, um, often when something bad happens, I have a strange instinctual desire for things to get worse. I think of a terrible outcome and then I wish for it. Uh, you, of course, write about various kinds of disasters in the book from, from 9-11, the Titanic, um, environmental catastrophe of one kind or another. Do you think that's a, a, a common feeling that we all have about disasters as we watch them on, on the TV, whether they're in Florida or New York uh, or Hiroshima or Chernobyl? we get a, a, a secret excitement out of it? I think so. I think it it might be um, so taboo that we sort of repress it or deny it the second we realize it's there. And that's part of what I wanted to do in this book is not deny those secret wishes. Um, and again, sort of not exonerate myself from my own failings and, um, just dark thoughts and my uh, my complicity in this kind of general disaster that we're all living in. You talk about this general disaster. Um, uh, a few uh, a few days ago, I interviewed the the British writer uh, Lucy Falks, losing our mind. What mental illness really is, and she quotes um, a couple of people about 
I don't say this, your generation, the younger generation, uh, American, as she talks about 9-11. Uh, many of our first, uh, first full memories of national news concern the 2008 financial crisis. Um, these were children when Lehman Brothers collapsed and the Great Recession followed. Is there a, a generational quality to your sensibility, perhaps even your aesthetics about disaster? Do you feel as if you are part of the disaster generation? Well, I am technically late generation X, not millennial, but I've I've found that um, my my audience, perhaps my best audience is kind of millennial and younger, I think because they've lived with that kind of apocalyptic anxiety um, but, their, but, but their entire lives. In, I, I, I don't want to sound like an old fart, which of course <laughs> I am. Um, but Every generation lives with that, what you call apocalyptic uncertainty. I mean, I, I, I grew up in the 60s, so I don't remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, but you talk right. to people who were teenagers or young people then, the, the sense of apocalypse was much more real in the, in the mid-60s than it is today. And isn't it fair that throughout history, the apocalypse, either real or imagined, has always um, haunted us? Yes. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm careful not to, not to sort of discount the fact that there have, there has always been apocalyptic thinking, but I, I think climate anxiety is a little bit different just because we really know for sure that it's going to continue to get worse for so long. Um, I think there, there might be some sense that certain disasters could happen and then things would get better afterwards. Like once the apocalypse happens, then we get to go to the post-apocalypse. But- um, This is but, the environmental <laughs> apocalypse or the Trump apocalypse <laughs> or the Twitter apocalypse. Which apocalypse are you talking about? The climate apocalypse will certainly get worse for a long time. Uh, you say in the book, uh, or you write in the book um, that, uh, your, your sort of first apocalypse or one of the first sort of awakenings, if you like, of, of, to the apocalypse was, was reading John Hearst's uh, Hiroshima. Um, and you remember as a, as a, as a young girl, uh, the idea of eyeball, eyeballs melting when, when, when the atomic weapon was, was dropped. We had uh, the wonderful journalist, I'm sure you know her work, uh, Leslie M.M. Bloom, on, who, who wrote a, an extremely good book, Fallout, which is in many ways, I think, a which is about Hiroshima and, um, and Hersey, uh, and it's a good compliment to your book. Is there something in the hierarchies of disasters that places Hiroshima at the very top, do you think? Yeah, there's something very singular about it because, um, you know, that's one of the things that people used to fear, right? In the 60s, when they were thinking of apocalypse, they weren't thinking of climate change so much as nuclear war. Um, but so many of our fears are based on this, this one or this two part disaster, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So it, it does feel like, um, almost like a disaster movie that happened in real life. It, it was a very visual disaster. We see images of the, the mushroom cloud and images of those kind of destroyed cities over and over. And even though Tokyo had been completely destroyed by firebombing, those images are not as familiar or as pervasive. Uh, you quote, and, and this is not the first writer I've had on the show who quotes the French cultural theorist Paul Virillo, who famously said, um, 
Uh, the invention of the ship was the, also the invention of the shipwreck. Um, when it comes to disasters, are you suggesting then that the invention of the camera, or perhaps even the book, is the invention of the book about the apocalypse or the, the video about the apocalypse? Yeah, perhaps. Um, but also that, um, you know, the more that we design technologies that are meant to address disasters, the more we're inviting disasters that are caused by or at least involve those technologies. Well, let's move on to the, the elephant in the room, which is, of course, the coronavirus. You wrote this collection of essays um, uh, before coronavirus. Today, the news is pretty good. The, the numbers are going down in the U.S. But your book does, in a very eerie way, presciently, if not predict coronavirus, COVID, but you talk about it in all sorts of interesting ways. I'm quoting you here. A few weeks ago, John, ha John the, the husband, handed me a book he must have seen on the new book shelves at our library. It was Pandemic um, by Connie Goldsmith, relevant to my interest, certainly. But I pointed out to him, this is a children's book. Um, <laughs> is, um, is, 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 is COVID, uh, Elisa, uh, 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 in terms of a narrative, is it a, a, a children's pandemic? Hmm. Um, I wish we had been able to understand it that simply. It, it's odd how um, how obvious it was that it was just sort of rolling toward us like this, you know, tsunami across the country. We we saw it happening. <laughs> um, we had sort of plenty of data, and we still did so little. It was really, really quite horrifying. Um, did you know at the time um, that? Uh, it was a, I mean, you obviously did in the book, you, and, and this comes back to the Virilio quote, uh, you, you say uh, rabies like malaria, Zika, typhus, bubonic plague, and all flus is a, zoo, a zoonosis, a disease that makes the leap from animal to human. Um, uh, we were able to eradicate smallpox, quaman notes, because it's not a zoonosis. It only infects humans. And once we've cured them all, it has nothing else. It, it has nowhere else to hide. Um, this is, of course, a, a zoonosis, um, the coronavirus. Does it reflect, prove uh, Virilio's warning about how one kind of techno technological invention also uh, involves catastrophe? Well, you know, I, I have to admit that I've been um, following the, the lab leak you know, quote unquote, conspiracy theory story. And um, I don't, I don't think it's like an open and shut case that it is a conspiracy theory. Um, so you I believe it could have no, but 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 I don't think there's any doubt that everyone acknowledges that that that, that bats were involved in this, whether consciously or unconsciously, whether in the lab or out of the lab. So your your arguments prove right either way. Well, I think the, you know, the variation that um, has this weird spike that made it so exceptionally contagious hasn't been found in an animal host. Um, and that's part of what lends credence to the possible lab leak theory. So I find that matter, fascinating. From, from the point of view of a, a disaster. I absolutely uh, think it matters. Yeah. Like you. Why? Um, because if 
if humans are ultimately responsible, um, not just for, you know, failing to contain it, but for releasing it into the world in the first place, then we need to make sure that we don't do that again. I don't think anyone would argue that. What would, what would you do? Close all the labs? Well, no, the, the lab leak theory involves this idea that some scientists, not just Chinese scientists, but an international group of scientists were doing this kind of research, which definitely does exist, where you modify viruses to see if you can make them more contagious and then figure out, you know, and then study those variations so you could figure out how you could then prevent a pandemic. Um, so it's, you know, it's well-intentioned research but nonetheless might be more dangerous than, um, than it's worth. <laughs> uh, Alyssa, you, 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 you write uh, about hysteria, both in a cultural and a, and a medical sense. Are you concerned at all that we seem to live in a hysteric age in which hysteria has taken over every <laughs> aspect of our culture and, it, and it's reflected uh, yeah. on social networks as well as being compounded by social networks? You know, to some extent, yeah, I think um, there there's a, a strange impulse to to make everything seem like the worst thing ever. Um, you mentioned Sebald earlier. He he always points out or did point out when he was alive um, that you don't need to exaggerate something as horrific as the Holocaust, for example. Um, it can't be made any more horrific than it is by using hyperbolic language. Um, but yeah, I, every day on Twitter, I see very hyperbolic language and it does raise your blood pressure and I'm, I'm not sure that it helps anything. Has it got something to do with, and you, 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 you title your epilogue, The Unreality of Time. Does social media collapse time, destroy time? I think it collapses both time and distance. And memory, um, of course. Of course, yes. And what is what is memory but time? Um, yeah, I, I, I think it it's had some effect on my ability to um, to operate in the world and feel normal and know who and what to care about. You mentioned Seabold. Um, as as I said, uh, I, I'm a big admirer of his work. You clearly are very influenced by him and your style, and even in the photos in the book. Um, Seabold, in some ways, I wouldn't say he's a, a revisionist on, on the Second World War, but he's different from some writers as a German. Um, you, you mentioned the Holocaust. We had the um, the historian Wendy Lauer on the, on the show recently. I think it's another book that I don't know if you've read it or even heard about. It. It's called The Ravine, mm -hmm. a family, a photograph, a Holocaust massacre revealed built around, it's a narrative built around this particular photograph of the death of a woman and a child um, in the Ukraine. Um, this is real, Elisa. At what point um, in your work have you lost faith in reality? The book is called The Unreality of Memory. The last chapter is called The Unreli Unreality of Time. Have you given up on reality in the book? I mean, our photos, and I'm not suggesting that you're denying photos like this, but our photos like this, which are real, are they helpful in, in telling the story of things? I think they are, yeah. I, um, I, 
I have not given up on reality. <laughs> what what troubles me is that reality recedes so quickly into the past because our only access to it is through you know, what we call the present. Um, that, that epilogue is largely about how what we think of as the present is really the just past, which has already been kind of pre-processed at this unconscious level in our minds um, and filtered through all of our existing biases and limitations and and even that, um, you know, we start to revise instantly <laughs> in our minds. And everybody has their own little revisionist history of the past. And then the, the deep past that we never experienced at all, um, we're only getting other people's revisionist histories. And so what frightens me is how little access we have to reality. Not that, it's not that I don't, um, want very much for there to be a stable reality that I can access and refer to. There seems to be some, uh, in, in, in the book, um, your sort of a moral, a, a crisis, if you like, of moral epistemology. You, 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 you're, you're wrestling with real questions. What, what, what and, and I quote you, where do I focus my anxieties so that I can feel like a good citizen in an anxious society? Um, the, the, the ghost of Donald Trump hangs over this book. You were clearly affected by that. What conclusions in a post-Trump world where things seem to have in some ways come back to normal, mm -hmm. where are you putting your moral sensibility in terms of worrying? What should we feel? You know, there you, you make a joke on Twitter. I saw a link to an article titled, Should We Feel Guilty About Gentrification? You're suggesting, of course, that's absurd. But we should feel guilty and we should worry about some stuff. What's worrying you? What's I know you have trouble sleeping, Elisa. What's keeping you up at night? Um, well, I've had a headache all day and all night for about three weeks. That's currently what's keeping me up at night. Um, I, I have to admit I was shocked by how quickly... Donald Trump almost disappeared from my mental landscape once he was mm. kicked off Twitter and not president anymore. I just completely stopped thinking about him at all, um, which on the one hand, I feel lighter and, and happier. But on the other hand, it's, it's a little scary because I stopped paying as much attention in general to what's happening um, in, in politics, um, in our government. Uh, what laws are getting passed and not passed. I, some of it trickles through, but I'm not paying as rapt attention as I was during the Trump years. So that's probably really bad. I mean, I, I don't have a lot of faith that <laughs> um, everything's going to be fine now. You yeah, know, you the thing about Trump was he sort of, he was again a, a cause and a consequence of mm -hmm this culture of trauma, of hysteria, that he conformed to what we most feared. And when he goes away, then we're not quite sure what to think. Yeah, um, there was, I do remember that like kind of triumphant sense of relief, um, people shouting in the streets. It's, it's funny that that happened once Trump lost the election and that we've never gotten that kind of catharsis about COVID because there's no there hasn't been really, really an end. And I don't think there ever will be an end. It's just this kind of trickling out. You reference um, the writer, Elisa, um, uh, Janet uh, Malcolm, uh, the, the author of The Journalist and the Murderer. She, she wrote a very famous 
first sentence, every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. You love that quote. And as it happened, again, there's something sort of eerie about all this, um, Elisa. Malcolm, the, the journalist with what the New York Times calls a piercing eye, died uh, a week or two ago. Um, she seems to question the very idea of truth. And this is something that you talk about in your book. Last week, I had the um, the polemicist Jonathan Rauch on the show, has written a book called The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. And I brought up the Malcolm stuff with him and he responded angry. He said she was just trying to get attention with that <laughs> quote. Um, again, I've sort of touched on this before, but have you given up on the idea of truth? Is that something that's a, um, a seduction, something uh, that, that doesn't go anywhere? At the end of the book, you say, um, uh, I'm close. Uh, you believe that ideas are emotions and that thinking is reducible to feeling. Does that give up on the idea of truth? No, I am... I feel very strongly that, you know, nonfiction should be nonfiction. Um, and, you know, kind of like turning back to poetry after I wrote this book was because I was exhausted by trying to be as accurate as I could and, you know, trying not to um, like cherry pick facts to serve an argument in the book. Uh, I felt a great deal of responsibility to, you know, what I think of as is truth. Um, I suppose I'm just, never sure that my truth is the truth or that there is the truth. Um, yeah, I'm just, you know, one of my great interests is sort of human wrongness, like all, all the ways that we are wrong. <laughs> um, and I include myself in that. So I, I, I'm just, I'm very reluctant to ever be truly certain of anything. Um, it just, it just seems to me that whenever we think we've found the one true cause, it's always reductive. But the one thing that's true is emotions, you suggest. Ideas are emotions. Everything's emotions. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that quote makes more sense after everything that's come before. But, you know, what, what sentence is that not true of? It always must be read in context. What do you consider yourself most? Poet? Essayist? Psychologist? Self-critic? Autobiographer? I guess I just consider myself a writer and I bring a slightly different frame of mind to the page depending on what form I'm trying to work in and what goals I'm trying to accomplish. But um, whether I'm writing a poem or a piece of criticism or an essay, um, I'm, I'm always just trying to find like a sentence or a paragraph that perfectly encapsulates an idea that I've been obsessed with. Um, and, I, and I like to form that idea in language. So it's really just me thinking through writing yeah, uh, certainly the, the essay form lends itself to that kind of protean narrative. And it's perhaps not surprising that your work has been acclaimed because in some ways you, you, you reflect your uncertainty uh, and skepticism about everything. The world itself seemed to reflect the world. Is that fair, do you think? I do think that's fair. Well, it's a wonderful book. Um, Elisa, Thank you. The Unreality of Memory um, and Other 
essays. Uh, really, uh, I've been reading it all morning. As I said, it reminded me a lot of Siebold and, and lots of other wonderful writers. It's a must read, I think, for anyone who is confused by the world and particularly by disasters. Um, in addition to your book, uh, you, you remain in Denver. Um, for now. And I hope I haven't been too rude about Denver. Anyone <laughs> watching in Denver, please don't take this too personally. Uh, but in addition, um, uh, Elisa, to your, to your book, The Unreality of Memory, what else should pe people be reading in this strange time where we can't believe in anything? Including yeah. memory or truth or emotions or time. And we don't want to spend too much time on Twitter. I think one of your one of the suggestions un, unwritten or unarticulated in the book is don't spend too much time on social media. <laughs> yes, advice I'm, I should take. Um, you know, the book that I really want everybody, especially people on social media to read is Crowds and Power by Elias Canetti. Not a new mm. book, but Classic. Oh, so powerfully relevant. Um, <laughs> Why? Uh, it just, it, it really explained the crowd dynamics and the power struggles that occur um, on Twitter in particular to me in such an amazing and direct way. And I just, I just couldn't believe how, yeah, how relevant it was. <laughs> you might, you might just say something about uh, Kinetti, uh, a, a pre-Second World War a Bulgarian Jew. Uh, you might explain what he wrote about because not everyone will know the book. Right. Well, oh, I wish I had it handy. Um, it's a it's a long book about all kinds of um, just the way crowds form mobs in order to uh, seek revenge, um, vengeance mobs, vengeance crowds are one kind of crowd. Um, he kind of defines them by their prevailing emotion, which I find fascinating, whether that's, um, you know, persecution or catharsis. Uh, there's these sort of happy crowds that are seeking catharsis, um, kind of like a parade. Um, but yeah, it's just sort of about the way the, like the intelligence of the individual becomes subsumed in a group um, in a way that I find extremely enlightening. Well, I wish we could get El Elias Canetti uh, on the show. Unfortunately, he's not around these days, but we have Elisa Gabbett, who is uh, perhaps the Canetti the of the early 21st century. I want to thank you, Elisa. Your book is really wonderful. Uh, the Unreality of Memory and Other Essays. Um, closest thing, again, we have to Siebold, perhaps around today, certainly in your generation. Uh, keep well, keep worrying, thank keep you. writing, keep questioning reality and time and i will look forward elisa to have you back on the show in the not too distant future as long as you leave denver you, i just don't think that's the right place for you to be thank you thank you so much for having me that was a delight